I remember after I had sold my first book, I went to New York and met my editor for the first time, like, in real life. And she said, would you like to write another book? And I said, yes. And she said, what are your goals for your first book? And I said, my goal for my first book is that it does well enough that you'll let me write a second book. That was the voice of John Green, who is a multiple New York Times number one best-selling author, YouTube creator, and podcaster. His novel, The Fault in Our Stars, was a runaway sensation that was made into a film that was also number one at the box office uh, that I actually played a, a small role in. I was Patrick the Youth Pastor. Uh, his recent book is a number one New York Times bestseller as well, called The Anthropocene Reviewed, which I love. I actually listen to the audiobook because he reads it himself. He's got a great voice, and it's a great, great book. Uh, this is Working It Out. Oh, I'm Mike Birbiglia. I forgot to even mention that. Uh, and I should point out that I have some really, really exciting tour dates coming up. The tour has been a blast. In, in the month of January, I'll be in Berkeley at the Berkeley Repertory Theater, which is gorgeous. If you're anywhere near the Bay Area, you got to come check that out. I'll be in Seattle. I'll be in Portland. I'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Durham, Indianapolis, Dallas. I'm going back to London. I'm, for the first time, doing a show in Paris. For the first time, doing a show in Iceland. I am, uh, I'm really trying out some stuff on tour right now that I've never done before. I'm so excited to share the new show, The Old Man in the Pool, with you. I have this great conversation with John Green today. I got to say, one of my favorite episodes of all time. I know I always say it. But there's something about this one where I said a thing and then he said a thing and then I said a thing and then he said a thing. And I think we both ended up saying a lot of things we weren't planning to say and we weren't planning to remember from our childhoods and our lives. Enjoy my conversation with the great John Green. When I was in my early 20s, the people I looked at as models were people who had long careers, not necessarily, like, big careers. Yeah. I mean, my favorite band was the Mountain Goats. My other favorite band is They Might Be Giants. Yeah. You know, bands bands that have had amazing long careers without necessarily having a lot of big hits. Yeah, and even, like, you point out in, the, in Anthropocene Reviewed, which, I mean, I could talk about this book endlessly. I love this book so much. It's... I, I would say like it's my favorite book I've read in in years. It's thanks, it, man. It, yeah, I mean it's it's so moving. It's so moving. It's so funny. But one of the things you point out is that Great Gatsby was a failure for Scott Fitzgerald, in, at, at least critically. Like, and you actually read some reviews of at the time where someone calls it. One of the reviewers calls it a, a seasonal book at best. <laughs> Yeah, a book for the season only. Yeah. Which is like such a it's such a massive miss. It's such a when I read that, <laughs> it was one of those that was one of those moments in research where you're just like, oh thank God. Like thank God I spent an extra two hours reading about this so that I came across this incredible, incredible review of book for the season only. Just chef's kiss, perfect, missed the point entirely. Well that's and that's sort of the theme. It's an interesting book because it combines a certain sort of anthropological 
discussion of the Anthropocene, which is the geological era human beings are a part of, for lack of a better way of describing, the last 12,000 years or so. And, and But then <laughs> the reviewed part of the title has to do with, in the last like 20 years or so, we've started putting three, four, five star ratings on things basically because of metadata. And yeah. Because of Amazon, more or less. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And yeah. these are not ratings that are actually helpful to humans, right? Like, no. If I, if I read a 400-word review of the new Mike Birbiglia show, I learn a lot more than I can learn from any single data point. But because these information systems are so powerful, these information sorting systems are so powerful and so important to our lives, we've done this weird thing where we've started to really pay attention to those numbers as if they matter. Like when I'm looking at a plumber, I'm like, I don't know, you know, this guy's got 4.4 <laughs> stars, this other guy's got 4.6 stars, he might be better. Yeah. And of course, that's a piece of the picture. That yeah. single data point can tell us something. Yeah. But I'll give you an example of the unreliability of the single data point. I like the Anthropocene Reviewed book, and I'm proud of it, and I'm really glad that you like it. But it has a much higher average Goodreads rating than Gatsby. And <laughs> I, I, I love that example. I, I think Gatsby is probably the superior Might work. be a better book. And you never know. It's, it, we'll, ne <laughs> we'll never know how these things age until a couple of hundred true. years from now. That's true. <laughs> I don't like my odds. But yeah, I hear you. The the uh, no, that's a very funny point, though. But yeah, so so anyway, to to give the listener a sense, if they haven't read this book already, is you take this sort of massive geological era, the Anthropocene that we're living in, and and then you <laughs> pick out things that whether ideas, the idea of wonder, uh, for example, or you know, uh, sunsets, for example, as an idea, and you give it a star rating. And you, yeah. Dr. Pepper, you give it a star rating, and 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 from that, you jut into these these really elaborate personal stories and experiences with these micro things, which have sort of a larger macro emotional experience. And it's really interesting because it's I, I don't know who who originally coined the phrase about writing, but I, I find it to be very true, which is in the specific we find the universal. And, yeah. and I feel like that must have been a guiding principle for you with this specific book. It seems like that's exactly what it is. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be uh, overly deferential to you here, but I was thinking a lot about— <laughs> why, I was why, thinking not? A lot why not? Why not, though? <laughs> I think that'd be a nice thing to do. I was thinking a lot about your work when I started this project because one of the things I really— I mean, one of the things that's the hardest for me— is getting to a place of emotional sincerity or earnestness and and without being cheesy, without turning people off via sentimentality or whatever. And your, your work was one of my first ways into that, like ways into understanding how you could use the specific to get to the universal, how you could use the funny and the ironic to get to the emotionally mm. real. And I, I wanted to try to do that. I wanted to find these places where my little life runs up against these big historical forces. But I also wanted to 
figure out like how do I how do I find a way to write directly about emotion? How do I find a way to write about the beauty of a sunset without it being cliche yeah. and sentimental and and somehow like stripping away the irony that's kind of my default setting to get to some kind of real emotional depth? Yeah. It's interesting because I, I think for for the listeners, it's a very inspirational book in terms of the depths of challenges that you reckoned with that I didn't know about along the mm. way. You know, you were working a job at a book list in Chicago and you had a, a, a mental emotional breakdown that led you to move back with, with your folks. And, and I mean, you really, I mean, in so many ways hit rock bottom. The idea of you, that same person being the same person who wrote all these number one best-selling novels, it's oddly, like, it's oddly a self-help book in some ways. <laughs> oh, yeah, I hear that. Yeah, I mean, I've never written directly about those times in my life before. And, I mean, I, in some ways, I I was always writing about them because, you, you know, you use that stuff when you're writing fiction, but I'd never tried to write about it in a memoir-y kind of way or trying to approach it through the lens of nonfiction. And it, it was ha- It was way harder. It was. It's really hard. I mean, it's tough to. It's it, it. It's tough to look at that stuff and. And see it through the lens of of how I was living it then, not through the lens of now. Yeah. Like the lens of now is, I grew up. I you know I found a lot of stability in my life. I have wonderful friendships. I have a great marriage. I have wonderful kids. Like. I didn't know that any of that was going to happen, putting aside the professional stuff, which is important, but not nearly as central, I think, to my overall well-being. I, you know, in that moment, in those moments, it, yeah, it was really difficult. And going back there was hard. But it's interesting is like one of the things you open in the book by saying is is that you, you know, people often read into your fictional novels things that they go like, you know, do you get nervous when you kiss, you know, the way this yeah. character does or whatever? Right. And, yeah. And you, I, got, I mean, a very famous interviewer asked me if I have panic attacks when I kiss <laughs> girls. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I got, first off, no, but like more to the point, what a wildly inappropriate question. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about uh, sharing your your life and, and, and part or, you know, real things that happen to you in in uh, the format of nonfiction like Anthropocene Reviewed. I mean, like, I know I know you, and I've seen Sleepwalk With Me, and I've read the book, and I've heard the This American Life retelling of that story. And I and I understand that you 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 tell the story as a story. Right. And a lot of it happened. But the fact that a lot of it happened is like I when I was very when I was very early on in my career, I remember I have one of my good friends from high school, Daniel Alarcon, just won a um, a MacArthur Genius Grant. He's a brilliant writer, and he told me, I mean, before either of us had published anything, I was telling him about my first novel, and he said, you know, the fact that something happened is not a reason to put it in a book, but it's also not a reason not to put it in a book. Sure. And thinking about. Thinking about making stuff that way, thinking about it like 
holistically as what serves the book, as what serves the reader, as what serves the audience. That's the kind of stuff that I'm actually thinking about when I'm writing. I'm not thinking about like, is this real? Yeah. But I think there's such a temptation now to read to read the author into the work. And some of that we've done to ourselves by being so available. Yeah. You know, like yeah. people know a lot about me and or at least they can certainly find out a lot about me. And so inevitably they're going to read me into it. And I can't get mad at them for uh, doing exactly what I asked them to do in watching my videos sure. and reading my tweets. But at the same time, I, I did start to feel really kind of stuck and constricted in that and not knowing how to navigate the the fact that I was always going to be a character in the story no matter how much I didn't want to be, no matter how much I wanted the story to work as a story on its own. And I think in some ways writing this book, The Anthropocene Reviewed, was a response to that. It was a response to being like, well, gosh, I can't figure out a way out of this little, you know, kind of thing I've constructed for myself. So maybe I should just try to write as me. So I met you, of course, through The Fault in Our Stars because our mutual friend Michael Weber co-wrote the screenplay. And he called me and he said, hey, have you read this book, The Fault in Our Stars? And I said, no. And I and he said, well, read it. And um, and then I did. And I cried and cried. I was the last person to not read it. It was the most popular book on the planet. I cried and cried and said, yeah, count me in to play this little part. And that's how we met. I came to Pittsburgh and we... Went to a Pirates game. We hung out, and, <laughs> and this movie was a big hit. And some, to this day, a lot of people don't even know me from anything else. <laughs> they go, you're the That's guy from Fault in Our Stars. I'm like, yeah, I do some other things, but sure. <laughs> yeah, I. it's funny. I mean, like, I, I knew in the abstract that the, the movie was a big deal because, you know, like— Willem Dafoe was in it and Laura Dern and Shailene Woodley and all these famous people. But I was actually already on set when they were like, and Mike Birbiglia is going to play Patrick. And I was like, wait, what? Mike Birbiglia? <laughs> the, the Mike Birbiglia is going to be in this you're, movie? You're the only person who said that. And I was so, I was like, oh my God, it is a big deal. That's, like, this is a proper, this is a proper Hollywood blockbuster. That's an outrageous comment. I don't know if you know this, but... They had me try out for that. I had heard this. Yeah, and I was so bad. So you say it was you say it was easy. But like I submitted a tape and I sure as hell didn't get the that job. That is so funny. Yeah. Oh my yeah. god. And then they, so they like they picked the guy who would play me if I were lucky if I were in a movie. That's amazing. But I was yeah, I was just I was so excited and I I was super I was also super nervous to meet you. I was I I mean, I'm, I don't know. I don't know if you have this at all, but like, I don't want to be starstruck. I don't feel like the experience of starstruckedness is good for either the star or the struck. You know, like <laughs> I, I feel like it's like a negative experience for for both people. <laughs> the star or the struck. But I did. I, I felt a little. I felt a little starstruck. And then when we went to that pirates game, we had a great time, and uh, I was that uh, was just a great night. And the pirates made the playoffs. Yeah, it was which a big. Was not an event. I was particularly invested in before the game, but I really enjoyed the experience. Yeah, by the end, yeah, of course. And then, so I, so I read the Fault in Our Stars book, and then when Michael called me, and I was, it, it, I, the, the YA, the young adult 
genre I was unfamiliar with prior to that. And then after I read the book, I um, didn't understand it because I was like, well, this is very sophisticated and this has all the ingredients of a, a, a novel for adults. So I just, I literally don't get it. I don't get it to this day. Can you explain it? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of YA novels that are as good as any book. Right. Um, And I I had a little bit of the same feeling when I started working at Booklist when I was in my early 20s. I didn't understand much about contemporary YA literature. When I thought of young adult books, I thought of Sweet Valley High and Babysitter's Club and Go Ask Alice and things like that. Sure. And then almost immediately when I started working at Booklist, because I was the youngest person there, I was the closest thing they had to a YA. I was like 22. They started sharing YA novels with me. And I was like, oh, my God, like reading Walter Dean Myers and Lori Holtz Anderson and Marcus Zusak. And I I just felt like this is incredibly exciting. This is so good. Like so many of these books are so, so good. Yeah. And I I think the best YA novels take teenagers seriously. They treat them as Mm -hmm. serious, thoughtful, intellectual creatures, which they are, and take the problems of teenagers seriously. And whereas, like, a lot of books for grown-ups about adolescence, like, say, a book like Philip Roth's The Plot Against America, which is a great book, they have a lot of narrative distance. There's a feeling of almost looking back. There's almost that, you know, rose-tinted glass of looking back into the past, the Barbara Walters soft focus. <laughs> and what I love about the my favorite young adult books is that they have no narrative distance. The, 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 it feels like it's happening right now, yeah. and it feels like it's happening to you or to your high school self. Sure. And and that that visceral feeling was so exciting to me when I first started writing, reading YA, that I really wanted to write it. It's interesting because when I read Anthropocene Reviewed, I connect with it in such a deep way. But you and I are have a very similar background. You're 44 with kids. I'm 43 with a child. You grew up in Florida. I grew up in Shrewsbury, the Florida of Massachusetts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're we're both preoccupied with sort of similar. Like you're you're really into like diet Dr Pepper. I'm really into like yeah. Coca Cola and coffee. You know, like it's just yeah. we have similar kind of nerdy interests. And so I'm like, when I'm reading, I'm like, okay, he wrote this for me, and I, and thanks a lot. You know, I really appreciate it. Um, but do you think in the draft process, you're like, I need to make sure I open this out to people of all experiences and ages? No, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not sophisticated enough to think that with that kind of like cleverness about audience. That's um, that's what it is. It's you're not sophisticated enough. Okay, we can I, move to the next. I, one. But for, for whatever reason, though, I just have never, I've never <laughs> thought about audience that way. Like I've never. I, I'm not able to be conscious about it. The moment I become conscious about it, it's like seeing your, you know, seeing yourself in in a hall of mirrors where you see an infinite number of mirrors and like I can only look at all of the me's. Uh, (laughs) When I'm writing, like I really can't afford to be self-conscious. So I, I I mean, I guess maybe in the revision process, I, 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 I try to think about the needs of the audience, but I think about it very abstractly, you know? Yeah. 
I do think, though, that with this in particular, like I, I will confess that it like it means it means a lot to me that you, that you liked it and that you responded to it because I was trying to write something that the people I like would like. If yeah, that makes yeah, sense, sure, you know, of course, like, yeah. that like I wanted my best friend to be like, oh, I liked that way better than any of your other books. I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to get closer to me and closer to the way that I, you know, would write if I were writing directly as myself. Do you, it's so funny, do you, in, I was looking at my calendar, 2019, we hung out, you, me, and Sarah at the Comedy Cellar. And I remember. And it was so fun. And I remember it like it's a dream or something. Like, how am I socializing and stand-up comedy and all this stuff? Do you like stand-up comedy? Because you're very funny and your your books are very funny, but they're not comedic essays per se. No, definitely not. I love stand-up comedy. It's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an astonishing art form to me. I am very, I am perennially nervous when I am, in any kind of live theater experience. Like I find it a very, I find being in the audience to be really challenging from an anxiety <laughs> management perspective. Yeah, I get like that. Like I'm so worried. Like I, I remember seeing Hamilton with my son and, you know, he just had this huge smile on his face the whole time. And I, I couldn't stop thinking, I hope they remember their lines. Oh my gosh. What if they forget their lines? That is a ridiculous concern. I was, yeah, I know. Like (laughs) they do it every, they do it every night. (laughs) They're fine. They're going to be okay. They've probably even if they do forget their lines, they probably got strategies for dealing with it. They're professionals. This is Broadway. But but I couldn't stop thinking about that. And then when I, I think you probably, I don't know, I I I don't know the extent to which you remember that evening, but because I you've performed a lot, but. My experience that evening was Sarah kept looking at me and being like, you laugh so loudly. <laughs> like, I do too, by the way. I'm a super loud I, I know, laugher. I, and I, I don't know what it is for you, but for me, it comes from ha- knowing what it is like to bomb. Sure. You know? Uh, like, I know it all too well, I, yeah. And I just remember that so vividly that whenever I am at a stand-up comedy show, I do. I laugh very aggressively. And I, I laugh hard because, well, one, it's funny. I'm enjoying myself. Yeah. And two, I'm just, I'm so worried for you. I'm yeah. so worried for you when yeah. you're on stage. Like every time I see you on stage, and I saw you, I saw you once or twice, I, I think twice before we met. And I mean, you're a very confident, comfortable person on stage. You make everybody feel comfortable and everything, but I'm still scared for you. <laughs> I get it. That, I mean, that's how I feel. I, I feel like I want to be a sub- when I watch another stand-up comedian, I try to be a supportive audience member. I try, yeah. If they're intending for me to laugh, I'm gonna try to laugh. I want to laugh. Yeah. I'm gonna try to laugh. Yeah. There are gonna be probably moments where I'm like, that one wasn't for me. My professor John Glavin, screenwriting professor in college, once said something that I found to be very wise. He said, he said, all we can do for each other as human beings is is uh, amuse. And be amused. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really like that. I really like that yeah. idea of, like, we can try to amuse and we can try and be amused. And if we do both of those things, then, like, probably there's more harmony. 
Yeah. And just as we tend to pay a lot more attention to loving than we do to being loved, we tend to pay way too much attention to like more attention to amusing than to being amused. And we need to pay attention to both. Like when I'm in that setting, I want to, I want to be amused in the same way that like when I'm reading a book, like I want to like it. I want to read it generously. Right. Well, it's funny because it, and of course, being amused is related to this. There's this line where you say that a friend uh, of yours said, quote, for anyone trying to discern what to do with their life, the best thing to do is to pay attention to what you pay attention to, because that's pretty much all the information you need. And it's and, th- and that has and that's the same as being amused. That's same as listening. That's the same as watching. I feel like mm-hmm. that's I mean. Do you think of that as a a lot of your job as a writer? It's all listening. All of almost all of life is, right? Like if you're paying careful attention, this is the pleasure of being in the company of great comedians is that they're experts at listening. Really, like that's what they're good at. They're good at yes and. Mm-hmm. More than being good at telling jokes, they're good at paying a really careful kind of attention. Yeah. And so that is, yeah, that's definitely what I'm trying to do in my work. I think that's a lot of art in general, though, is... Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very fond now of this idea of both amusing and being amused being pretty essential to the point of life. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested by it. I've, I've, once he, he said it to me, you know, 25 years ago, and, and it stuck with me ever since. It was yeah. like, wow. And, and I, I once repeated it to my dad. I said, you know, my, my professor, John Glavin, said this thing. The goal is to... Be amused and be amused. And he goes, I don't think that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we do this thing called the slow round, and a a lot of it's based on memories. And do you have a memory from childhood where you, you just think of it a lot, but it couldn't possibly even be a story because it's just a thing in a loop? Yeah, I have a few. Um, I got a banana smushed in my face when I was in fourth grade. <laughs> it made me snort. By this kid, by this kid Eric, <laughs> and he smushed this banana in my face, and then I like smacked him with the back of my hand. And then I had to go to the principal's office, and I was, like, in the principal's office, and they were like, why did you hit Eric? And I was like, there's still banana on my face. Like, what do you think? Oh, my God, that's How so do you, funny. I, I, yeah, and I, and I still, like, I still feel— Oh, my gosh. Like, you know how there's something about when you're wronged that it— it you just feel it so intensely. Like uh. I remember one time when I was a kid, my mom got into the car and she said, "You've been smoking in this car." And I was like, "No, I haven't." And she was like, "You have been smoking in this car. I smell smoke." And I was like, "No, you smell smoke because I have been smoking." Oh my god! But I have not been smoking in this car, and <laughs> and that's not fair. It's not fair of you to accuse me of something that I didn't do, even though I I, I did just have a cigarette, but not in your car. I would never do that. So, do you have a smell you remember from your childhood? Yeah, a few of them. I have a, a vivid memory. So I went to a boarding school 
for the last three years of high school, and I vividly remember the smell of our dorm room. Mm. It was because we used this artificial scent called spring rain to, like, mask the other smells. Mm -hmm. And what were those? Maybe, like, (laughs) Gatorade, (laughs) chewing tobacco, sweat. So so the the combination of all these smells. Yeah, yeah, that's very nice. But with the overwhelming Glade spring rain on top of it. Still comes back to me sometimes. And then I also remember the smell of the rhododendron trees at camp. Like, I went to camp when I was a little kid, and it was, like, the only three weeks of the year when I felt okay. (laughs) And I loved— And sometimes I'll still, like, catch a whiff of the way, you know, camp smelled. Oh, yeah. And I'll feel transported back to childhood, but in a way that doesn't feel scary. Yeah. And it's— Really lovely. Ah, oh, that's great. Um, what's a story that you tell your friends casually, like at bars and things like that, but you have never put into a, a book? Uh, there are a few. I mean, I'm trying to think of one that's appropriate for that I can tell for the podcast. Mine is um, mine is obviously before I told on stage was the sleepwalking story because it was it's oh so, god I bet so that story. Extreme. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I and I don't know if this will be funny. Sometimes I tell the story about how I became the um, boxing reviewer for Bookless magazine. <laughs> okay. and I don't think I've ever told this story before. But like at Bookless, you would have these incredibly specific niches because sure. the magazine reviews 400 books every two weeks. Wow. And and there are just so many books. So I had no interest or knowledge about boxing whatsoever. But I was, you know, a, a reviewer for Bookless. And one day, my boss, who I tell a story about in the book, um, in the section about Harvey, he's really the yeah. person who, who, I mean, really saved my life. There's no other way to say it. He recommended you watch. He recommended you watch the movie Harvey, which I would recommend to people also. By the way, yeah, Jimmy Stewart film. Yeah, it was a really wonderful movie, and I also I watched it at this point in my life where I was really, really sick. I, I was I was severely, severely um, mentally ill, and and I was going through a really uh, life threateningly bad time, and Harvey did a lot for me because it showed me a mentally ill character who was still very valuable yeah. and still very val- valued and who could amuse and be amused and love and be loved yeah. and all those things. And and that really, it did, it changed my life. And Bill, Bill knew that. But I, I always talk about Bill like he's a character in a noir mystery novel. Like that's how he was to me in those years and still is to some extent. Like he's just, he's a master of pauses. He doesn't use a lot of unnecessary words. And he's a brilliant, brilliant person. So one day he comes into my office and he says, uh, hey, kid. He always called me kid. And I say, hey. And he says, uh, hey, you know uh, George Cohen? And I said, yeah, of course I know George. I've, I've worked with George for 10 years. He said, or five years. He said, uh, oh, yeah, kid, I got terrible news. George died. I said, what? He said, George is, uh, he's dead. And I was like, George, George is dead? And he's like, yeah. No, he's 91. He had a good run. So listen, kid, uh, George was on Holocaust and boxing. Now, I got Eileen on Holocaust. Oh, my God. But That's amazing. I'm going to need you. That's am- That's, this, is, this is absurd. To take up boxing. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay. And he left. And that's how I became the boxing reviewer at Bookless Magazine. 
it was a great reminder to me that when my day yes. as the boxing book list reviewer was Completely. done, everything was going to be fine. It's going to be fine. They're going to go to the next guy. They're going to they're going to go to some other yeah, kid. They're going to go to Andrea, and they're just going to say, "Andrea, you're boxing. <laughs> John's dead. You're boxing." He had a good run. He had a good run. Oh my god, that, yeah. that's amazing. Doesn't that just say it all? <laughs> Um, what is, um, oh gosh, I, some of these questions I won't ask you because you're actually so self-deprecating that I, I can, I, I can, can try, no, I but can I, try. Can, I can already see where you're no, going to go I, with it. But you know what, Mike, you've, you've called me to not be self-deprecating and I'm going to not be. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to. What do people underestimate about you? My ambition for sure. Oh, number one. Well, that I— Well, you always demand contractually, even with this podcast, you demanded <laughs> that I say you're number one, multi-number yeah, one, I got a final New York cut. Times bestseller. I, actually, I'm going to edit this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put in those little nice little Jack Antonoff uh, acoustic riffs. Sting. That's all me. Acoustic riffs. Oh, my gosh. I—no, but I—, I I I do really like especially when I was younger like I wanted to be successful so so badly and mm. and I was you know just really really hungry for yeah w- what it turned out like success cannot feed you but I really wanted it It's so fascinating and do you recall being an inauthentic version of yourself Oh yeah absolutely I mean like what what did that look like what was the inauthentic John Green along the way? I I heard you talk in a previous episode of the podcast about having a period in your life where you wore a cowboy hat and you were cow- oh, a yeah. cowboy hat guy. Cowboy hat guy. And yeah, that was yeah. your identity. And I definitely tried on a lot of those identities. Like I tried on being trench coat guy. and <laughs> Yes, that's right. And being yes. eyeliner guy. <laughs> you sure? And I... You know, I and 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 of course, all those are are, are little two dimensional versions of yourself that are inherently inauthentic because they're two dimensional. Yeah, and I think there was a period in my life where I was trying on being a successful author guy or yeah, you know, semi famous uh, writer guy. Yeah, and. So when you asked that question, the first thing that sprung to my mind was, I got these suits from Burberry. You know Burberry, the like oh, clothing yeah, sure. store? Yeah. I got, like they gave me a suit once for a thing, and then I, I was like, I really like this suit. And so I went to like the Burberry store in Indianapolis, and I, I, I got a, a few suits. And yeah. I, I look at pictures of me in those suits, and I just think like, you you knew that wasn't you. <laughs> like, look at you wearing sunglasses. You knew yeah. you knew that you knew that was. Yeah, but I I I wanted to. I don't know. Like I wanted. I want in in a, in almost like a middle school way. I wanted to be cool. Yeah. So yeah, I think about myself in those Burberry suits, and I feel like that didn't feel authentic to. To myself, even as I was living it then, like I always felt like it was a little bit performative. Do you feel like between the Burberry suits and the desire to be successful and all this stuff, was it an attempt at reversing like 
you know, you got bullied in high school and things like that. Do you feel like you thought it would redeem your you sort of to the bullies of your past? I mean, there's definitely an element of being revenge fantasy. Yeah, being fueled by resentment, especially early in my career. I was really fueled by resentment, which I learned eventually is like a fuel that burns, but it burns very dirty. Yeah. I'm sure you have book ideas, story ideas that eventually you just have to let go of because they yeah. don't go anywhere. Do you have a qualification in your head for when to let go of something? Oh, God. No. Do you have one? Can you can you tell me how to do it? No. It's all I have is if it doesn't occur to me anymore, I don't do it. If it doesn't pop into my brain. Yeah. I mean, I one time I wrote like 150, 200 pages of this story that was a desert island story, and I was so fond of it. And I'd always wanted to write a desert island novel. I love desert island stories. It's like my favorite genre in the whole world. And I spent, you know, a year on this. <laughs> yeah. And then it just was kind of going nowhere, and I didn't know what the deal was with it. So I put it away for a couple of weeks, and then I reread it, and there was just nothing. There was nothing. Yeah. I'd wasted the whole. I mean, I guess I hadn't wasted it, but in that moment, I felt like I'd wasted it. Yeah. And I don't know how to get rid of ideas faster than that. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the hardest things. Actually, is sorting through what which idea needs attention now. Yeah. Because it, 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 especially early on, it's so hard to tell. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, 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 I have so many things that I wrote for the Anthropocene Review that never, just never worked. Yeah. Like, I remember I spent like a month writing and rewriting this review of the movie Die Hard 4. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's so funny because I, I'm a huge Die Hard fan and I didn't know there was a number four. And trying really hard to, like, understand my own feelings and thoughts about Die Hard 4 and, like, yeah. why what they say about my broader approach to making and consuming yeah. art and and this and this and this and this. And then finally, after, like, you know, writing, like, 10,000 words and deleting 8,000 words, I was like, you know, maybe I don't need to have an opinion on Die Hard 4. <laughs> maybe that is the thing I've been writing toward is yeah. – I don't have an opinion on this movie, and that's okay. This is material. Um, why is... Let me lead with this, because, because you have so much stuff with uh you work with your brother a lot and I work with my brother a lot yeah. and um and when I was a kid my brother used to punch and suffocate me um it's almost like older brothers go to a special martial arts class on how to cause the most physical pain without making a mark meanwhile I was 5 getting my head slammed against the pavement thinking I guess it's okay <laughs> he is my brother and then I would cry to my mom, but my brother was also very funny. So before she could yell at him, he would make jokes to me, and I would be laughing. And then he'd say to my mom, if he's so hurt, why is he laughing? 
And my mom would be so confused that the, the case would be dismissed. <laughs> I love the case would be dismissed. That is like, that's the thing that every older brother is reaching for, right? Like not a guilty verdict, but a mistrial. <laughs> like we, Yeah, I, and, I, and it w- would be dismissed. You know what's wonderful about this? And this is sort of a, a window into the whole process for the listeners. I just improvised the case would be dismissed. That's good. Probably because the alchemy of you and I talking at the same time, and so I know my audience, and I know the kinds of things that you enjoy, and I think that came to me. Yeah, you get the sign um, wave. But I, exactly, and so I just jotted that down. My mom is so confused, the case would be dismissed. But yeah, no, I think that that maybe is a good capper for it. Um, why is he laughing? Why is, yeah, yeah. Like, if he's if it's that bad, how come it's yeah. funny? But of course, like the joke to that joke is that all the time when it's that bad, it's also funny. Every time, That's, like the worst, all the all, yes. all the worst moments in a human life are also funny. A hundred percent. I mean, I talk about that extensively in the, my new show, "The Old Man in the Pool." Is is laughter, laughter, and, and crying run hand in hand in 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 relationship, of course, to funerals and, and yeah, and people dying and people we love and all this stuff. But also in a very literal way, like we laugh until we cry. Yeah. And then we, you know, like in the, on the worst days of your life, you cry until you laugh a lot of times. Like if you're, yeah. if you're lucky enough to be with someone in that 100%. who's really with you in it, you generally can get, you have, there are moments of there. And I, I don't know that like saying moments of humor is the wrong thing. It's more like you, you, you just can't believe how bad it is. and yep. But at least it's That's also right. bad for this other person. At least it's also bad for, you know, this other person who loved this person who just died. You're Hopefully you're with someone who's committed to amusing and being amused. Yes, yes. But not in a way that's trying to minimize the... The pain. Ex- extent of the, the loss which is a difficult balance and kind of, in my experience anyway, one that can only be found with other people who are going through it. I mean, there's I think a, there's, that's true, yeah. Th- there's a weirdness about grief in that it's so isolating a lot of times. Like, it feels like you're on a planet. Uh, Cheryl Strayed said this. This isn't my idea, but it feels like you're on planet. My friend just died and everyone else is on planet Earth. I love that. But if in those moments when somebody else is with you on planet my friend just died like there is such consolation in that for me yes so yeah not not about your joke that's just a side note no i mean this is the extrapolation that goes into you know the next draft of the joke i mean yeah that's yeah, one yeah. of the things about this part of the show that i think sometimes people uh some people get and some people don't which is like it's a discussion to sort of like go down different tunnels of this theme and go like, oh, yeah, there's something there potentially. And maybe this could loop into yeah. something else. Yeah. I mean, it's the cliche version of it is that you're looking at an elephant from a lot of different directions and you're trying to describe lots of different parts of the elephant. And then there's like a zoom out moment where everybody's like, holy crap, it was an elephant all along. It's very, that's interesting. Yeah. Like the, Joe, my brother Joe often describes comedy writing as letting your brain go for a walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's, what, that's what a lot of it is, I think. Right. And not knowing where you're going to get to and no. being okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have that with your brother where were you masochistic with each other when you were younger? 
No, but you telling that story in the magical way of comedy did remind me of something I hadn't thought about in many years, which was that when we were pretty young, like he was probably seven and I was probably 10, we, my, my two best friends and I, with my little brother, rode our bikes to the mall without consulting our parents. It was, <laughs> sure. a, it was, a, it was a different time. <laughs> and it, there, it, was a, it was a pretty busy road. And I remember looking back and like my brother wasn't able to keep up and it was a pretty busy road and he was just sobbing. Oh, gosh. And so we get to the mall and he's just uncontrollably sobbing. And I was like, well, this is a pickle because we got to get him home and we got to get him home in such a state that he does not say to mom and dad, oh my God, of course. hey, we went to the mall. No, I know. Oh my gosh. So I like bought him stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I bought him stuff. <laughs> I, uh, I think I got him. I, I think I got him a koosh ball at a kiosk. Oh my gosh, a koosh ball. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then we, and then when we went on the way back, I remember I was like, Hank, I will take, I will take the rear and no matter how slow you go, I will be behind you. And so you'll know that you're safe. And I thought that was very mature and a cool, protective big brother thing to do. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, the nanosecond we arrived at home, the door closed, he bursts into tears holding his koosh ball. And he's like, John made me go to the mall. Yes. And I almost died. Yeah. So I thought of the, I thought of you. I was writing this joke the other day and I thought of you, which is um I've been trying to cut back on soda because I'm not sure what it is. Like the recipe, <laughs> the recipe for Coca-Cola is secret, secret. And the recipe for Diet Coke is rat poison in water. I don't know why they didn't keep that one secret. <laughs> So that's, that's a joke. I'm, I'm trying that to get was, that into the show because yeah, you and I finished. both have a soda thing. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that one's finished. What? Uh, How did yeah. your Diet Dr. Pepper thing start? Because you talk about it extensively in the book. It's like, yeah. did, was it from childhood? No, it wasn't. I, I didn't. I didn't even like diet soda until I was in my 30s. Mm. And I think it's because I hadn't had regular soda in a long time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's so, that's exactly why we why we become attached to diet soda is yeah. because we're so far removed from regular yeah, we forget, soda. We forget about the pleasure of like an actual Coca Cola enough to drink a diet Coke. Absolutely. And I, but I remember, I do vividly remember, it was. Like like being 32 or 33 years old and drinking a Diet Dr. Pepper and being like, oh my God, yeah. like this is really, I could, I could drink a lot of these. It has just enough caffeine for an old man. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's zero calorie. It's a little, it's, it's sweet enough. It's sweet compared to LaCroix, you know? And you make the point in the book that they, they simulated the flavor Oh yeah, regular Dr Pepper, and so it's, it's engineered. Almost, it's it's basically Dr Pepper, no calories. Yeah, much more than any other diet drink because the taste of Dr Pepper itself is so far removed from any real world analog. Like it's not like Sprite, which is a mix of lemon and lime flavors. Right. Like however distant it might be from actual lemons and actual limes, like there's a real world analog that you can kind of peg your mind to. There is right. no real world analog for Dr Pepper. Like it was. 
even in its very conception, it was chemical. I think it's very telling that all, almost all sodas were invented by pharmacists or chemists. Sure. Like, they're, no, completely. they're drugs. My mom was a nurse when I was growing up, and I'd get a cold or whatever, and she'd give me Coca-Cola. Like, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and it like, works. And it was pretty good. It's a pretty good situation. <laughs> oh. I still do it today, not for my daughter, but for me. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a nice, like— it's a nice gift that you could give yourself when you're not well. <laughs> so, okay, this is another sort of family thing. Um, Christmas is a huge holiday for my family, and our family rule is no gifts over $5, which I think if Jesus were around today, that would be his rule. <laughs> He'd be like, don't make a big thing of my birthday, no <laughs> gifts over five shekels. But... Christmas is such a strange holiday because it's Jesus' birthday, but no one gives Jesus presents. We just give them to each other for no reason. Under a tree we killed that was pumping out 300 pounds of oxygen a year. We're like, okay, kill that. I'll buy you a candle that'll be gone in a week. I'll wrap the candle in this other tree we killed. All in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So anyway, my brother Joe hates the $5 gift rule. He's like $5 minimum and preferably <laughs> something from my Amazon wish list. Joe is the only person I know who treats Christmas like it's a wedding registry. He's like, I've always wanted a stainless steel popcorn popper and we we just keep running out of wine goblets. <laughs> no matter how many I have, yes. I always need more. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... I mean, Christmas is hard to make jokes about, right? Because it's been joked to death. In fact, my brother for has sure. a song called Jesus Gets Nothing for Christmas. Oh, wow. So that joke goes, that part of the joke goes away, I, I think. I, I think you can, I think you can keep covered. the joke, but I think you have to go listen to Jesus Gets Nothing for Christmas to okay. try to get new, new angles yep. on it. Yeah, 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 for sure. But I think that the, the whole idea, I mean— the more you think about gift giving, the weirder it is because to what extent is like to what extent is it really about the person and to what extent is it like about what you want to say about what you know about the person? Yes. Like and the thing about a five dollar gift limit is it just doesn't really solve that problem. Right. Because you can still go to the dollar store and like yeah. try to are, is it about the other person or are you trying to express something about who you are? Right. Dental floss, pencil toppers. Yes. And I'm sympathetic to Joe's position on this because I would rather, personally, I don't want things I don't want. Right. Even if they're thoughtful. Same. Same. Even if they're they're a deep, meaningful response to something I do love. Yeah. I I don't want it if I don't want it. No, sometimes my mom will get me like a sweatshirt. It's like a a Cape Cod sweatshirt, XL. I'm like, I'm a medium. And uh, that, that is not a sweatshirt I would wear. I love you. I yeah. don't have room in my closet. I live in New York City. Yeah, it's like the, it's like that thing where your mom will be like, oh, I made you your favorite spaghetti. And you're like, I don't, I don't like spaghetti and I haven't in many years. <laughs> my dad, my, and you've I had never that with asked. my dad. I had that you just never dad. asked. My dad had that with my dad once. We're, we're at a restaurant and he goes, Michael, you should try the salmon. I go, dad, I haven't eaten fish 
since I was three years old. I'm allergic. Like, are you are you catching any of this? <laughs> like, I get that you're absent, but you don't have to be all caps absent. All right, I got this thing about summer camp, which is um, we were talking about sending my daughter to summer camp because some of her friends were going. And my worry is that when I went to my first sleepaway camp as a kid, we didn't tell my parents about any of the dangerous stuff that had occurred. Like we got to pick five uh, activities, and one of mine was riflery. My parents did not know that I had chosen riflery. Uh, I was a I was a fidgety 11-year-old child who always dropped the bowl of orange slices on the way to soccer practice. Clearly, what I needed to clean up my act was a firearm. Another activity I chose was drama. One day, there was a police cruiser who showed up at the camp and took away my drama counselor who had threatened one of my other counselors in a walk-in freezer with a knife, which I thought was a little dramatic. <laughs> I had a... That's- it's a good. I, I had a few notes. And so we so we go home from that week and my mom says how is camp and we go it was great and she never heard a word about it. And now I'm that mom. I'm taking my daughter to camp and I'm saying how is camp and she's like it's great and I want to be like what about the rifles and the walk-in <laughs> freezer? But I feel like that would be crazy. Yeah, there's such an intensity to summer camp though. When I my my summer camp, my like defining summer camp experience was this thing called the Huck Finn Adventure, where we built our own raft, myself and like nine other 11-year-olds and then like two 19-year-olds. Yeah. And then we rafted down the French Broad River for 10 days <laughs> and we slept on the raft and we lived on the raft. <laughs> what? And this was a ate, sanctioned activity in the camp? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we ate sardines on the raft and... Then after 10 days, we arrived in Knoxville, Tennessee, and somebody came and picked us up. Oh, my God. That's amazing. And it was intense, man. I mean, you you see some stuff on the river, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you see some stuff life, on the river. Life on the French Broad River is not like life in Orlando, you know? Yeah. Like, it's not. It was intense. Yeah. I mean, I remember I have so many camp memories from Camp Marshall. I remember running, running to horseback riding and <laughs> and and being like sweaty and out of breath. And I didn't realize it was in wasn't in the same location. It was down the road and I had to it was like a 20-minute walk. I get there, they go, Where's your boots? I go, Fuck, I don't have my boots, you know? And then I jog back and I'm jogging back and I'm realizing, oh, I have to take a shit. And then I'm like, I'm getting to my cabin and I'm trying to put my boots on, but I also have to take a shit. And then I run into the little train cabin and I'm like shitting with my boots on. And then like I don't quite make it there in time. And it's just like a debacle. Oh, and I'm oh. literally like, I don't want this to be my life. <laughs> I wish this wasn't my life. Like, there's so many things at camp where you're like, I wish this wasn't my life. 
I remember it's, I, yeah, so you're bringing back all these memories for me. I, so when I was a kid and I mean, this, I, this is embarrassing to say out loud, but when I was a kid, like when I had to pee really bad, I would take the, my, my, my penis and I would pinch my, my <laughs> penis to stop the flow of the pee to sure. like hold it longer. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> and I remember like one day I was walking to tie dye class or whatever yeah. And I was holding, I was holding my penis to to yeah, sure. stop stop the flow of pee because I didn't want to like pee with the person I in front of the person I was walking with. Sure. A- and the person was like, "What are you doing?" And I was like, "Nothing." And they were like, "You are doing something." And yeah. I was like, "No, it's nothing." And they were like, "Let let it go." And I was like, "I can't." <laughs> oh my gosh. I can't. I can't let it go. Yeah. Uh, and but it's just like the, the overwhelming. Oh my like, god. <laughs> be- because they're fostering independence, right? Like, and you're not ready to be independent. Like, I wasn't ready to be independent. I was still holding my penis when I had to pee. You, you know, what's so amazing. I mean, we're talking about the young adult stuff and how emotions are so raw in that, in that, you know, that age in your life. It's like I was probably at Camp Marshall, seventh grade, something like that. There was this camp at the end of every week. There was a dance. Oh God! And the I dances. had a crush on this girl. Her name was she was French Canadian. Her name was Catherine. And mm. and um, and we had a crush on each other, and it was like we're gonna dance with each other, and we're gonna kiss at the dance or whatever. That, that was sort of the plan that was distributed um, socially among the yeah. campus. Right. You and, you with this kind of thing, you receive word about it more than you make the choice. <laughs> yes, I received word that Katrina and I would be kissing at the dance, and yeah. then um, and then we spent a lot of time at the dance. But then we didn't kiss at the dance. Oh, and which is uh, perfectly adorable and probably based on both of our uh, reticence. We proceeded. Katrina and I proceeded to be pen pals when she went back to Canada, writing long form, yeah. handwritten love letters. Oh, that I had for many years, and then like my mom just had. And it's just like, wait, Aww. my mom has these love letters now from when I'm like in sixth grade or whatever it is. And it's so rawly embarrassing because it's literally just being like, I love you so much and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I couldn't tell you three things about this person. <laughs> and in turn, she could not tell you three things Oh, about forget you. about it. She couldn't say yeah. three things about me. We, yeah. John, I'm telling you, we are so we were soulmates. We were made for each other. Oh, the uh, feeling is so real, though. Even though it's not based in any reality, like the feeling is still real. I, the, my first kiss was at camp. Yeah, and I remember, like, I received word. You know, like I yeah, was you in the receive word. You receive word. And, yes, and, and a friend, a friend of hers, came to me and said, "Tiffany wants to French." Yeah. And I said, okay, well, I guess we're going to French. Like, we'll save it for the last night of camp. And we had, like, a candlelight ceremony where I would cry. I'm, I've always been a crier. And, you know, it was the end of camp. I was going back to my regular terrible life. and My regular terrible life. And I was like... And then Tiffany came over to me, and she hugged me. This is the most cinematic thing that's ever... It's the most, like... Uh, R-rated romantic comedy thing that's ever happened to me, but it, it, this is 100% the truth. She wrapped her arms around me. I wrapped my arms around her like this, like around her, her you know, neck, shoulders area, and we began to French, as, as we called it. Sure, French and, kissing, sure. 
And then I noticed way too late that I was still holding the candle and my hair was on fire. Oh, my God. And my hair was on fire. And <laughs> you could probably I don't know smell if you've it. Ever, you could probably smell. I don't know if you've ever smelled burning hair, burn but hair it's the is a very, worst very intense smell. smell. It's yeah. the worst smell. Oh, gosh. And that was, that was my first, that was how, that's how it was my first kiss. That's huge. It was big. It was a nice moment. Well, I'm glad we memorialized it here today yeah. on the show. I'm glad because, we got to that. Well, I think the camp thing is going to be huge because I think be, because of you and me kicking this around, I remembered the love letters and the, oh, and the, and the dance uh, with the Katrine way, and all that stuff. Those, I've never written that down. find those love letters, Mike, oh. imagine if there are lines in those love letters that are just gold, which there are. I mean, you're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls here, John. I mean, I don't think we're going to be able to find them. <laughs> the thing that we end the show with is um, is working it out for a cause. And if there's a nonprofit that you appreciate and that you feel like is doing great work, I will contribute to them, link to them in the show notes, and encourage others to contribute. Thank you very much for doing that. My brother and I are longtime supporters of Partners in Health, an organization that seeks to strengthen healthcare systems in impoverished communities around the world. Uh, Hank and I, in particular, are working on with PIH on the Maternal Center of Excellence in the Kono District in Sierra Leone, which is a maternal care center that is being built now and that will dramatically change the healthcare delivery in that region of Sierra Leone, which is the epicenter of maternal mortality in the world. And so uh, the wow. link is pih.org slash Hank and John if you want to donate or if you just want to learn more about the challenges of maternal health in impoverished communities, you can go to pih.org. That that sounds fantastic. I'm going to contribute to them. I'm going to link to them in the show notes. And uh, thanks for doing this. This is I'm going to I'm going to see you in Indianapolis in March. I, I every time I talk to you, every time I read your books, I feel uh, more alive, more enriched, and I feel like I have a ton of ideas from it. Oh, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be able to talk with you and. Yeah, I'm just a huge fan of yours, Mike. As you know, so this is—it's always cool to catch up and, especially to talk about work like this. It's—it's it's really hard to talk about the process of making something in a way that's constructive and that doesn't like build walls, but instead tears them down. And that's something I really love about this podcast is that it kind of demystifies that act of creation and makes the argument that this is really for everyone. And so, yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, man. Working it out, cause it's not done. Working it out, cause there's no That's going to do it for another episode of Working It Out with John Green. Oh, my God. If you haven't read The Anthropocene Reviewed, absolutely read that book. I think you'll love it. I really do. I, I love that book. If you haven't read Fault in Your Stars, read Fault in Your Stars. That's phenomenal, too. Um, thanks for joining us. Our producers of Working It Out are myself, along with Peter Salamone and Joseph Berbiglia. Consulting producer Seth Barish. Sound mix by Kate Belinsky. Sound recordist Parker Lyons. Associate producer Mabel Lewis. Thanks to my consigliere Mike Berkowitz, as well as Marissa Hurwitz and Josh Uffall. 
Special thanks, as always, to Jack Antonoff and Bleachers for their lovely musical stings that John references. As always, a very special thanks to my wife, the poet Jay Hope Stein. Our book, The New One. Oh, it's it's at your local bookstore. It's a perfect holiday gift. I mean, I don't know what you're celebrating, but I mean, it's about love. It's about family. I mean, isn't that what all holidays are about? Love and family? I'm actually not sure of that. As always, a special thanks to my daughter, Una, who created a radio fort made of pillows. Thanks most of all to you who are listening. If you're able to spend five minutes writing a little review on Apple Podcasts, tell us if you like the show. Throw us some stars. And while you're out there in the world, just tell your friends. And if you you bump heads with someone and you make an enemy, tell that person too. We're working it out. See you next time, everybody.